You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 7th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, as journalists in Israel and Gaza continue to come under attack, we speak to reporters without borders about the challenges of covering the war. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on an Indo-Pacific tour beginning at the G7 meeting in Tokyo today. We'll examine the US's foreign policy priorities. Then... I am confident that you can reach your ambitious goal for the historic decision to open the process of accession negotiations to be taken already this year. Ursula von der Leyen has been in Kyiv with the clearest message yet that Ukraine will join the European Union. We'll be in Warsaw as the battle to form a government begins. We'll have a hit of urbanism news and we'll find out more about the luxury goods market in India. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel would consider tactical little pauses in fighting to facilitate the entry of aid or the exit of hostages from the Gaza Strip, but again rejected calls for a ceasefire despite international pressure. Reuters is reporting that Vladimir Putin has decided to run in the March presidential election, a move that will keep him in power until at least 2030, as the Kremlin chief feels he must steer Russia through the most perilous period in decades. And Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese met Chinese Premier Li Qiang in Beijing today, in what Albanese said was an annual leaders' meeting that would continue as relations between the trading partners stabilised. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, since the start of the latest round of Palestine-Israeli violence, which began on October the 7th, at least 30 journalists have been killed. That's according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. These journalists include 25 Palestinians, four Israelis and one Lebanese. Reporters Without Borders, that's RSF, have been investigating the death of Reuters journalist Issam Abdallah. Well, I'm joined now by Fiona O'Brien, who's the UK Bureau Director of Reporters Without Borders. Fiona, many thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us of the circumstances leading up to the death of Issam Abdallah. There were two airstrikes very close together, we understand. Yeah, good morning, Georgina. Thank, thank you for having me on. Um, in the case of Issam Abdullah, he was reporting on the conflict from southern Lebanon um, with a number of other reporters and had been doing so for a while. They were clearly identified as press. They were out in the open, um, quite close to the Israeli border. Um, our initial investigation shows that there were two strikes in quite quick succession um, on the location where Issam and his colleagues were standing, the first of which killed Issam um, and the second of which uh, damaged a, a, an Al Jazeera car and injured other colleagues. So 
from that, we can say from that initial investigation that it looks like the place they were standing were targeted. They were targeted. What we can't say yet is whether they were targeted because they were journalists, but it's clear that they were very clearly labelled and identified as press. Mm. I mean, how does a journalist live and work in Palestine? So if we talk about the situation in Gaza, I mean, Issam is the only journalist so far to be killed in Lebanon in this conflict. So it's a slightly different situation, although, of course, part of the the same overall context. If we talk about the situation in Gaza, it's really unspeakable for journalists. Um, You mentioned in your introduction the the numbers. The numbers are rising all the time. Um, As you can imagine, for organisations like ours, it takes some time to verify each report. But as of this morning, our, our numbers stand at 35 journalists killed in this conflict, 31 of whom were killed in Gaza. Um, It's just a very, very difficult situation for them. Under constant bombardment, having had to leave their homes, um, a lack of electricity, you know, as a journalist, if you don't have electricity, how do you charge your devices? Um, A lack of connectivity, if you don't have access to internet, how can you contact sources? So all these really practical difficulties, how do you get food for your family? How do you find water? Where do you stay? In addition to that, the inescapability of the situation in Gaza is really unique as journalists. Those trying incredibly to persist and report on this war day in, day out, can't leave at the end of the day. They don't have a safe place to get back to. And their families themselves are involved. These are, for the most part, Gazans who are inside the territory and live there. This is their home. Today, horrendously, marks the one-month anniversary of the start of this conflict. You know, the 7th of October was, was the day when the horrific Hamas attacks in Israel took place, and we've seen everything else unroll since. So for journalists there, there's also just a sense of real exhaustion and desperation. And I wondered if you could speak to us about the the moral dilemma of recording events versus getting involved when it personally means so much. I mean, for journalists, um, obviously, the the job is to be there and observe and report on what we see um, and if you cross the line to to a combatant, obviously you're no longer a journalist. What I would say for the journalists in Gaza is is that family aspect that I that I mentioned, and that they are involved in the conflict in the sense that they are living it. Um, so, for example, a journalist named Mohammed Abu Hatab, who was killed a few days ago, the strike which killed him killed eleven, uh, ten other members of his family. So, eleven members of the same family um, killed in the same strike. So, obviously, there is a huge psychological impact, a huge physical impact as well for the journalists who are trying to report. I'd also say what makes this conflict um, unusual in a way is that no outside journalists are able to access the terrain. So you have foreign journalists in Israel, in Lebanon, sort of around the borders of Gaza. But because of the blockade, um, it's not possible for international journalists to get in, um, which is a real problem in terms of who's bearing witness to this conflict. International journalists have a very important role to play. Usually, uh, as um, your listeners may, may not know, but when we cover conflicts as journalists, we tend to rotate just the sheer exhaustion and difficulty of covering conflicts means you don't usually spend too long in the conflict zone. You'll do a few weeks and then come out and someone else will come in. Um, that's not been possible. Also, the distance that you can have as an international reporter is, is a really important part of witnessing. Yeah. And that's able to happen, too. In addition to the toll on individual journalists, um, in addition to the loss of life, we've also seen the targeting of journalists, journalism outlets. So at least 50 journalism offices in Gaza have been targeted over the the course of the last month. 
um, again, adding to the complications in practice for journalists to, to carry on covering the conflict, but also really pointing to a concerted effort to suffocate the media, to stop coverage of, of what's going on. Mm. Well, you were talking about international media and we, we have news in that um, Israeli soldiers in the West Bank threatened and detained a, a team of journalists from the German public broadcaster, uh, that's ARD. Uh, I wonder if you know any details of that or, or just how much media freedom there is within Israel. Yeah, I mean, I've, we've seen the reports of, of the ARD um, journalists who say that they were stopped at gunpoint by the IDF and, and detained for a while. Um, generally, again, just the situation for journalists in Gaza is particularly acute. But even for journalists around, um, it's not an easy place to, to be working, of course, at the moment, um, as in any conflict zone. Things are tense and also things can change very, very rapidly. So it's a very dangerous part of the world for journalists to be operating in, whether in Gaza or, or on the outsides of the of the enclave. Yes, well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. We've heard about uh, that the Reuters journalists sadly killed in Lebanon. But what about reporting from, say, the Rafa crossing or the West Bank? Are these journalists at equal uh, peril? I don't think we can call it equal peril in the sense that Gaza is under you know, near constant bombardment. So the level of aggression and danger in Gaza is absolutely unprecedented. We've not seen any conflict so deadly for journalists um, this century. And when you think that this century includes conflicts like Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Ukraine, um, that, that's um, quite an astounding um, figure. So I don't think we can say it's of equal danger, but of course, covering conflicts is always very dangerous. Um, what happened to Islam happened in Lebanon. Um, anybody, any journalist working there will be fearing for their safety and needing to take huge levels of precaution. What happened to the ARD journalists, um, what's happening in the West Bank at the moment, the sort of un- unsettled um, nature of the conflict there that's growing. So any journalist involved in covering this conflict will be in a very difficult situation and need to take many security precautions. Will there be any consequences for the deaths of members of the press who were clearly not involved in the conflict, merely reporting it? Georgina, it's a really good question. I mean, I would say, just to clarify for listeners, under international law, journalists reporting on conflicts are considered um, to have the same status as civilians. So they're entitled to the same protections. They're entitled to go about their job freely and, and, and without fear, um, and anybody who targets journalists is would be guilty of a war crime. So that's kind of the backdrop to it. Um, at RSF, we, on the 31st of October, have filed an initial complaint to the International Criminal Court um, concerning eight Palestinian journalists killed in the bombardment of Gaza and also concerning an Israeli journalist who was killed on the 7th of October, so a month ago today, while covering an attack on his kibbutz by Hamas. Um, We've asked the International Criminal Court to investigate those particular cases because we believe that they correspond to international humanitarian law definitions of, of war crimes. Um, that will be for the ICC to decide. We're looking at other cases as well to see if we can refer other individual instances on. Will What will happen as a result of that? Um, precedent isn't, isn't too favourable in this case. The vast majority of crimes against journalists around the world, whether in conflict or non-conflict situations, go unpunished. Um, impunity is rife. Um, but for that reason, we call on the international community to, number one, mobilise right now for the protection of journalists in Gaza um, and, and surrounds, but also to ensure that these attacks on journalists are properly, independently investigated 
um, and that there are consequences for those who have committed war crimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And finally, Fiona, for journalists everywhere, this is a very difficult time. I mean, clearly not as difficult for for those civilians living in the the region. But for, for those of us based in London or Washington, this is an emotive subject. And daily we get complaints from both sides about coverage. Our job is just to report the facts, but precise wording matters. How are you advising your members? It's such a good question, Georgina. Um, I would say as RSF, we don't give that kind of advice to individual journalists, but on a personal level, um, it's a very, very challenging situation heightened by a a political climate that's extremely sharpened, um, extremely divided. Um, Journalists' first job, as you say, is to report what's happening. So for those that are in the region, that means bearing witness. That means saying what you see, saying what you hear. For journalists outside the region, that means verifying everything. Not, you know, not journalists have a responsibility, for example, not just to retweet social media posts without first checking things are true, to understand the context, to educate yourselves about the backdrop to the conflict, um, what's happened to, to, to get us to this horrendous point here one month on from the from the awful, awful Hamas attacks. Um, and to take things slowly. Um, speed is highly valued as a journalist, but better to be to be slightly later and more accurate, especially in the current um, public and political climate than to to rush to the news and find that you've made an error. Fiona, thank you very much indeed. That was Fiona O'Brien, UK Bureau Director of Reporters Without Borders. This is The Globalist. It's 16.13 in Tokyo, 7.13 here in London. The US Secretary of State Antony Blinken has concluded a trip to the Middle East and today heads to Tokyo to attend a two-day meeting of the group of seven foreign ministers. He'll also be going on to South Korea and India to advance efforts to support a free and open Indo-Pacific region. Well, I'm joined now by Scott Lucas, who's adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute at the University College Dublin. Scott, many thanks for coming back on the programme once again. With all that's going on in the Middle East, is it surprising that the US focus on the Indo-Pacific has not wavered? Why is this region so important to Washington? Well, this region uh, has China, which I think is a pretty big country and which has been identified by the United States for some time as being perhaps, you know, the second most powerful country in the world as it tries to develop an alternative economic system to the United States as it has a very different political system and as there are military issues that need to be worked out. But then specifically, you also have the case of North Korea, which continues to be one concerning not just the United States, but the countries in the region, indeed the world, as it pursues uh, nuclear weapons, as it pursues better, more advanced armaments, including reportedly closing on on its first satellite launch. Uh, And then I think just more generally, you're talking about the Indo-Pacific region as part of a a changing world, a world which is changing rapidly in terms of uh, the economic connections, but a world which is changing rapidly, of course, because of specific crises, whether it's Russia's invasion of Ukraine or the Israel-Gaza war. And Asia is not disconnected from that. Just Mm. the very simple fact, for example, that both South Korea and Japan uh, have been vital in providing assistance to Ukraine along with others during the 20-month Russian aggression. Mm. 
Uh, and I would just like to explore that a little bit. For instance, how the Indo-Pacific feeds into what's happening in the Middle East. Well, it varies from country to country. So, for example, if you took the case of India, which now is the world's most populous country, uh, a country which has seen significant economic growth in recent years, uh, the Modi government, and it's been there quite a while, wants India to be seen as a power on the level with others like the U.S., like China, in terms of technology and the economy. But that raises the question of what's India's position on global political issues. Now, in the case of uh, Gaza and uh, in, uh, Israel, a lot of the supporters of the Indian government are very heavily pro-Israel. So initially, the Indian government tilted pro-Israel in terms of its declarations, squarely blaming, as you should do, Hamas for the mass killings on October 7th. But as the Israeli mass killings have uh, escalated, the Indian government has gone silent. Other countries, however, have not. Um, Japan, for example, Australia have been very vocal now in joining most of the international community and calling on Israel to uh, allow humanitarian pauses and to back off the bombing and the ground offensive. So in this era of social media, uh, no country is in a bubble from what is happening elsewhere. And again, the fact of the matter is, is that no economy is in a bubble as well. So even if these countries politically wanted to stand aside from India and Palestine or India-Gaza, the ramifications could affect them for weeks and months to come. Uh, and what about Russia and Ukraine? Uh, I mean, aside from funding, how involved is the Indo-Pacific with that? Well, I think the first and foremost question is just continuing to give very visible support as part of an international coalition for Ukraine uh, to simply stand as an independent country. I mean, remember 20 months ago, the priority was that Russia not uh, walk into Kyiv, topple the Zelensky government. Now we're talking about a different phase with Ukraine trying to liberate territory. You again have Japan, which for primarily focuses on humanitarian aid and non-military aid. You have Australia, however, which has provided significant military aid. And then you have, again, countries like South Korea who have given very vocal support and financial aid as well to the uh, to Kiev, even though South Korea is restricted in how much military aid it can provide. The one country you watch, uh, beyond China, of course, the one country you watch is India, which has been studiously on the fence throughout the 20 months of uh, the Russian aggression while taking cheap oil and gas from Moscow. But they've begun to back away from that in the last few months. They've cut back on those purchases of Russian energy supplies moving towards the Gulf and are being very quiet, being very cautious uh, so as to be seen, while at the same time not allying behind Ukraine, not to be giving any vocal support to Vladimir Putin. Mm. I mean, we know that the US-India uh, 2 plus 2 dialogue began in 2018, and that's allowed the two countries to have high-level discussions about strategic and defence issues. What is the extent of the US-India defence cooperation? Well, this defence cooperation really began in the George W. Bush administration <clears throat> almost 20 years ago. And it was sort of signal that after decades of seeing India as being studiously neutral regarding U.S. interest or even hostile, that America would begin to work with India as a partner. Uh, because I think, you know, this is in the context of China, uh, as it were, developing as an economic, as a political and a military force. 
Now, there have been some pauses in that U.S.-India relationship, but really since 2018, as you mentioned, uh, you've been talking about this very clear two-plus-two negotiation, which is now being supplemented for the first time by significant U.S. military provision of, uh, for example, engines for uh, Indian jet fighters, something the Americans had avoided because of the India-Pakistan issue for a long time, and also the provision of American naval drones to help boost India's Navy. Uh, I think there's a very clear tilt here that with Pakistan having a series of problems unlikely to be resolved soon, uh, the U.S. is counting on India, not just through the two plus two, but through the quad uh, with Japan and Australia as being part of a system not to confront China, but a system to develop continue to develop an alternative, a political economic system, a technological system, uh, which is one that is separate from and at times competing with Beijing. Scott, many thanks indeed. That's Scott Lucas there. Now, still to come on the programme. Together we can complete our union. Together we can bring Ukraine in our common European home. Together we are Europe. Could Ukraine soon become a member of the EU? This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. I'm Georgina Godwin, and let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is international broadcast correspondent and the former CNN Europe editor, Nina Dos Santos. Good morning to you, Nina. Good morning. We are talking about Donald Trump, which is always entertaining. Uh, His legal woes continue. He's appeared in court, rambling and being really very aggressive. It seems as though much of the world talks about Donald Trump, and the only person who talks about Trump more is probably himself (laughs) at this point. Georgina. Um, And boy, did he go for it in this um, courtroom showdown that we saw in uh, New York City, obviously the Big Apple, where he made all of his money. But he's under accusation of having inflated the amount of money and the value of some of his properties for years to allegedly um, get more money from banks, more advantageous terms, potentially lower his tax bills and so on and so forth. And the judge in this case has already said, um, ruled that he believes that Donald Trump has committed fraud. So really, Donald Trump had nothing to lose here. Remember, this is a civil case. It's not one of those criminal cases that he's facing, of which there are manifold as well, where a jail time could be on the cards. So instead, Trump yet again used this as a political battleground to get more eyeballs, uh, get more people 
to try and be convinced, he says, that this is a witch hunt, because remember that obviously in the United States, um, the, polit- the the judiciary is more politicised than it is in other countries. Um, but I mean, there's a lot at stake here. His children were deposed and had to take the stand, um, which is obviously worrying for him. And he could be facing penalties of up to nearly a quarter of a billion dollars, mm. potentially in the inability to carry on doing business in his own home city. But he's breaking the law in front of our eyes by uh, dissing the judge publicly. Yeah, and it's really strange, isn't it, that this is being allowed to continue. So he said to the judge, didn't he, you know, uh, you and the rest of, essentially, he was trying to say, the democratic cabal um, in the judiciary have it in against me. This is, quote unquote, election interference, he said. Um, that was obviously a sort of veiled reference to the 2016 election when um, he was elected president of the United States. And there were allegations that Russia may have, you know, had a hand in trying to uh, uh, sow misinformation and use uh, bots online to try and uh, further Donald Trump's cause and help him in the polls, uh, something that he denies, obviously. Um, but the reality is, is that this is just one of the cases that Donald Trump is facing. He uh, remonstrated with the judge who on repeated occasions previously has said, you know, either you shut your client up to his own lawyers, or I will have to do that. But he hasn't yet, because mm. obviously, that is the ultimate hot potato, isn't it? Putting Donald Trump eventually behind bars if he were to have to do so, even if it were in a civil case, because, say, for instance, he was facing an accusation of being in contempt of court. I think that they know that it would be really, really a turbocharged moment legally for the US because he is the at the forefront of the Republican race just, you know, a year on from election. Yeah, absolutely. Let's turn to Britain now. King Charles has waited 74 years to give his first King's speech. And it looks like he's going to be forced to say something that is at complete odds to what he believes. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a completely different situation to when his mother took the throne aged just 25. Uh, remember, she was a woman then in the 1950s. She hadn't expressed her political views. Uh, we didn't really know what the late Queen was thinking, even during her long reign. But it's a very different scenario with uh, King Charles because he's made what appeared to be a rather cuddly subject back in the day, even, let's say, just last year, uh, environmental issues, his sort of whole cause célèbre, his raison d'être. But the problem is, is that this has become an increasingly um, hot issue politically, particularly for the Conservative Party that is facing potentially a wipeout in the polls this time next year. And so Rishi Sunak has done a U-turn, no pun intended, on all of his climate change policies, many of his climate change policies. And that means that the king is going to have to, by law, in a very neutral and impartial manner, lay out a schedule for the coming government, for the next parliament, that will include a lot of policies that, you know, will not save the planet in the near term. And he's probably some uh, political watchers I've been, uh, you know, reading their pieces today have been saying will probably sort of pause at important moments or might raise an eyebrow, but he can't do anything more to push back against that. No. China, however, is pushing back at the fact that nobody likes them. <laughs> uh, and they're saying, well, if that's the case, you can't have our pandas. Which Tell us like <laughs> a lot, right? <laughs> Tell, I mean, I don't know about you, but with all the awful in the world, I find myself constantly looking at baby animals, particularly pandas. That's right. And the sadness is, is that a lot of this has been coloured by the debate of people who think that some issues around the world, including when it comes to China, um, and its growing might in terms of trade and potential drift towards autocracy, or perhaps 
definite drift towards autocracy, depending on which side you're on, um, are increasingly black and white issues, like, for instance, the, these uh, cuddly, uh, furry diplomats themselves. Um, China has been loaning pandas around the world in this sort of panda diplomacy initiative since 1936. It obviously took on a big, um, uh, you know, big meaning and significance back in Nixon's day in 1972. Um, But then since then, they've been loaning them only for 10 years instead of actually gifting these pandas. And as a for that reason, now with the souring relations, the two pandas in Edinburgh Zoo, their time is coming up next month, so they're probably going to head back towards China. Australia will be losing its pandas in the next couple of years, and then there's several in the United States as well. So I suppose... On that front, you could say the hawks have won. <laughs> yeah, and I think Australia may be getting more pandas because Albanese seems to be reconciling with China. They've only got two at the moment, I believe. And I also That's see right. that countries can rent pandas for a million a year for each animal. Indeed, yeah, this is part of this this sort of programme, isn't it, that they, that they have lending them out, which, you know... The pandas that came to the UK, that was furious diplomacy that went on for years before that. But that was at the start of, um, you know, 12, 10, 12 years ago, the start of this sort of great golden Sino-British era. Remember the start of the last tenure of the Conservative Party when David Cameron came to power and made such an effort to try and court the new um, leader of China, Xi Jinping. Mm. Um, But... um, Boy, have things changed. And obviously, and it's quite sad, isn't it, really? Because all of the school kids will be <laughs> looking forward to going to the end Brazil to <laughs> see uh, Tian Tian and Guan Yan will no longer have the chance to do so. Now, of course, we no longer wear fur and certainly not real panda fur. <laughs> uh, but in Italy, if you were looking for cut-price winter clothing, well, it's all a bit murky what's going on with the with the winter sales. Tell us more. Oh, I, I have to confess I had a hand in choosing this story because I'm biased because I lived in Italy for about five and a half, six years. And the one thing that I did adore was the definite change of the seasons and also I enjoyed seeing how much the Italians obsess over their wardrobes um, to change over their wardrobes you know cashmere might come in in November but you know definitely out by May the 1st you know and filed with the mothballs no longer are they doing that because obviously uh, things are getting warmer I was in Paris about two and a half weeks ago for a conference and it was 29 degrees then Um, and so for anybody who'd already changed their wardrobe over, you'd be caught out and sweltering mm. in the heat. This is a real problem for Italian retailers, largely because they have to um, reduce things by generally about January the 5th. There are laws that say that sales, ha- winter sales have to come in around about that time. And the problem is, is people aren't buying any more heavy clothing for the winter in November and December because it's warmer. Mm. And so the winter sales, well, they're just selling stock discounted that really should be pushed out for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really interfering with the retail cycle and also that wonderful Italian tradition of il cambio della stagione, the the changeover of the seasons, which only the Italians do here, as we know in the UK. um, People tend to wear the same outfit all year round because our climate's a bit more temperate, but also a little bit more unpredictable. Absolutely. Nina, thanks very much indeed. That's Nina DeSantis there. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israel would consider tactical little pauses in fighting to facilitate the entry of aid or the exit of hostages from the Gaza Strip, but again rejected calls for a ceasefire despite international pressure. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres warned on Monday that Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children, calling for an urgent ceasefire. Both Israel and Hamas have rebuffed mounting calls for a halt in fighting. 
Reuters is reporting that Vladimir Putin has decided to run in the March presidential election, a move that will keep him in power until at least 2030, as the Kremlin chief feels he must steer Russia through the most perilous period in decades. While many diplomats, spies and officials have said they expect Putin to stay in power for life, there has until now been no specific confirmation of Putin's plans to stand for re-election. And Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese met Chinese Premier Li Qiang in Beijing today in what Albanese said was an annual leaders' meeting that would continue as relations between the trading partners stabilised. President Xi Jinping said stable ties between China and Australia served each other's interests and both should expand their cooperation, sending a clear signal that China was ready to move on from recent tensions. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. The president of the European Union, Ursula von der Leyen, paid a surprise visit to Kyiv to address the parliament there and gave the strongest hints yet that the country will soon become a member of the bloc. This comes at a time when fresh aid to Ukraine is being fiercely debated both within Europe and in the United States. Well, Aliana Klivko is managing director at the Henry Jackson Society, a foreign policy think tank that advocates the robust spreading of liberal democracy, the rule of law and the market economy. Aliona, welcome back. Uh, what did von der Leyen say to the parliament? It was a very powerful speech. Good morning, Georgina. It's very reassuring to see European leaders still come to Kyiv at the end of the second year of the war, despite all the conversations across Europe and the world about Ukraine fatigue and money running out and everything else, to just come and face the nation effectively in the parliament and give a strong message that all the efforts that Ukrainians are putting into not just fighting the war, but also reforming our societies and institutions, that it's all being watched and it is going to pay off. Mm. And in uh, talking about those reforms, I mean, the EU has demanded certain things in return for, for membership. How has Ukraine addressed those concerns? So we had seven points that we had had to improve in order to become a candidate uh, for the EU membership. It's everything from um, money laundering to de-oligarchization to tackling corruption um, and then uh, free speech and media and national minorities um, amendments to legislature. So Ukraine so far, I think the Ukrainian um, social sector is actually keeping track on that. And I think we've reached... Um, seven points out of 10 if they had to grade it on the scale. And even only last year when we had an EU summit in Kyiv, I believe it was also closer to the end of the year, Ukraine was at 5.8. So there's definitely a clear progress on that. And we have seen so much effort put into especially the oligarchization and anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine that I think it's, I'm personally just really fascinated by the way Ukraine can fight the external war, and then also go on to this internal one. Mm, extraordinary. And I mean, as von der Leyen went on in, about her, in her speech, she was talking about young entrepreneurs and how mm. people were, were really creating new businesses and how this would just be such a boon for Europe. Uh, let's talk about money now, because this is a, a, a big issue. Uh, the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada, will pass the country's budget for 2024 this week, and there are big holes. So what support has the EU pledged and, and are those likely to be signed off in Brussels when it's debated this week? 
I think we are more or less certain, that's as optimistic as I can get, uh, that European Union will continue providing support for Ukraine. Um, obviously, it's it's divided in a way where European Union is covering um, two-thirds of humanitarian aid to Ukraine, whereas one-third goes for the United States. But it's in reverse when it comes to military aid. Mostly we depend on the United States for the military aid, and then the rest uh, gets covered by the European Union. Um, it is a matter of unity, of course, for the EU, because we can see some nations that after two years of war have had their elections and have gone down a, a strange route. Some of them have been aligned with Russia all along. But at the end of the day, I think there is a mechanism to reach consensus. Mm. For I mean, those countries, particularly Hungary and Slovakia, mm. uh, uh, will probably capitulate in the end. But in the meantime, there may well be a delay. And that's not just bad for Ukraine. It might also affect the economy of Europe. Well, I think that goes back to the question of social cohesion, not just in every European country that we're witnessing arise so sharply today, but also the unity of the EU. We, I don't want to point every time towards external factors, but the EU, uh, the NATO, all the unions who have been strongly supporting Ukraine, they're constantly being bombarded by various factors to break that unity apart. And it's really reassuring to see the strong leadership um, in the EU, like uh, Ursula von der Leyen and, and other strong actors that are keeping that unity together. And I think, again, they have all the mechanisms to put the members in line and to ensure that the union actually exists and expands by 2030 as it is planning mm. to do. Of course, huge division, though, in the United States between the Republicans and the Democrats and mm. even within the Republican Party itself with uh, former Speaker McCarthy really advocating for uh, funds to go forward for Ukraine. But, uh, of course, he's coming up against a, a lot of pushback. Uh, it looks like the new Speaker is trying to decouple the aid to Ukraine from that of Israel. That, of course, means delay. W what is the latest coming from Washington about funding? I think on Capitol Hill it's been decided that the aid will be decoupled regardless uh, because there are too many bereaved voices coming from the Republican Party um, about, as they put it, blank checks to Ukraine, even though that statement is completely inaccurate because there is no blank check. Every single penny and dollar that's being spent on Ukraine uh, is being accounted for. Even more than that, and I'm saying spent on Ukraine not being sent into Ukraine, because out of 113 billion that's pledged or already um, allocated towards Ukraine, 64% stays in the United States. It goes towards military companies, defense production, it boosts local industries, it goes towards federal agencies who are there to uh, accommodate and allocate all those funds. It goes towards 20 agencies and 120 people, I believe, according to Hudson um, Institute, um, that actually oversee anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine's military industry. So, unfortunately, Ukraine has fallen a victim to pre-electoral quarrels mm. in the U.S politics. And it's become that one factor that is so divisive in a very divisive American society. Yeah, absolutely. And just quickly before we go, I mean, given this very hopeful message from von der Leyen, what do we think the timeline might be for Ukraine's EU membership? And I wonder what membership means for people on the ground. And I know that you were actually at the Maidan demonstrations. Mm. This is something that really is very, very close to your heart. 
It's a milestone, and you're right, Georgina, it makes me so emotional because I was there at the very first revolution in 2004 when we first just put the issue on the agenda of Ukrainian nation. Do we want to be a European nation? Um, and then in 2014, I saw people getting shot dead on the streets, uh, protesting against the president who refused to sign EU association agreement. And for us, having to go on through, you know, shed blood and, and tears uh, for the European Union, it does make me feel like finally we're getting somewhere. It seems like in December at the summit, it is going to be announced that Ukraine is officially embarking on this EU membership journey. And hopefully by 2030, if not sooner, we will get there. So it is historical. Eliana Klivka, thank you very much indeed. This is Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's 8.39 in Warsaw and uh, the same in Zurich, 7.39 here in London. Polish Prime Minister Matthias Morwiecki will get the first shot at forming a government after his Nationalist Law and Justice Party won last month's election, the president said last night. It's a seemingly impossible task as the party lacks a majority. Well, Matthias Mazzini is a writer at large at uh, Gazeta Wyborska and a lecturer in journalism at Collegium Civitas in Warsaw. He joins me now. Uh, Matthias Mowiecki represents the party with the largest number of seats, but it lacks a majority. So how likely is it that he can form a government? Very good morning to you. I think it's highly unlikely, not to say it's impossible, because things might happen in politics, but uh, law and justice, as we've said in the introductory statement, is far from um, con- commanding a, a comfortable majority after uh, the October 15th elections. Uh, to form a government, he will require uh, finding 231 votes in support uh, of his proposal, and Law and Justice commands only 194, which is not only considerably short uh, of the required number, but it's also 41 uh, seats less than in the previous elections. There are obviously rumors that Law and Justice will try to approach the far-right Confederation Party, which has only 18 members in the and the new parliament, and maybe try to poach some of the more conservative uh, MPs among the former Democratic opposition parties. But uh, the math doesn't adapt. The numbers are not particularly um, in favor of the outgoing government. So even though he will be tasked with forming the government in the so-called first constitutional step during the first session of the new parliament, which is scheduled for next Monday, he is highly unlikely that this uh, will go forward. So if he can't, what happens next? Well, according to the constitution, the so-called second constitutional step is when uh, the initiative moves from the hands of the president into the parliament. And this is probably when the race to form a new government will actually end because when this um, moves over to the parliament, the opposition, which has a comfortable majority of 248 seats altogether when you adopt the three uh, fractions of the former democratic anti-peace uh, parties, meaning the left, the centrist um, third way and the civic uh, coalition, they are already 
uh, making a lot of public statements that the coalition agreements um, have been almost negotiated to the end. They are meant to be signed and publicly announced on Friday, uh, November the 10th, uh, the day before Poland's independent, uh, Independence Day that is um, scheduled to take place on uh, Saturday the 11th. And in the second constitutional step, Poland is quite likely uh, to have a government, but that won't happen at least for the next two weeks because the constitution guarantees 14 days for Morawiecki to try and rally support for his own proposal. Mm. So former European Council President Donald Tusk says that he is likely to take the post in the end and nominating Morawiecki just delays this. So if Tusk did get the post, what does this mean for the future of Poland, for Poland's relationship with the EU? Uh, and How crucial is it in terms of Poland's future direction? So Tusk is probably the only certain element uh, of the future coalition puzzle. We don't know the ministerial nominees yet. We don't know how many deputy prime ministers there will be. It's a very difficult um, coalition to, to, to patch and to put together because effectively it actually comprises of nine different parties. We have three different fractions, each of which is in itself already a coalition. So if you split that um, down to um, the ideological uh, lines of division, we really have a lot of eclectic and also power-hungry individuals that are trying to negotiate better uh, positions in the in the new government for themselves. Tusk is likely to become the next prime minister, but very unlikely to last the entire term also because he has a lot of negative electorate both within Poland and uh, elsewhere. So he's quite likely to start take on the, the hardest tasks, uh, which will touch upon restoring the rule of law, uh, re-establishing um, good relations with Brussels, um, restoring independence of media, independence of the courts. But uh, within maybe the first year, a year and a half of the term, he's quite likely to be replaced by someone younger, uh, someone less burdened by his previous experiences in politics, someone that could actually put forward uh, a new course in Polish politics. And, and the priorities in the first 100 days, maybe, uh, maybe a little more, will be primarily um, re-establishing good connections with Brussels, uh, re-establishing, reopening um, lines of dialogue with uh, the European Union also to um, to allow Poland to receive European funds uh, from the European Reconstruction Fund that have been blocked due to um, judiciary reforms by law and justice. Uh, and also try to normalize the relations with the outgoing government, because that's one thing that never uh, can be forgotten. After all, law and justice remains Poland's most popular party with 35 percent of uh, support and over seven and a half million votes cast in favor of them on October 15th. So even though it is an outgoing government, it still needs to remain part of the democratic dialogue. Matthias, thank you very much indeed. That's Matthias Mazzini, writer at large at Gazeta Wyborcza and lecturer in journalism at Collegium Civitas in Warsaw. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Become a Monocle Magazine subscriber today and enjoy 10% off any annual subscription. It's time to get a truly global view that's upbeat and optimistic. Monocle has plenty more in store for 2023 that will keep you informed, entertained, and, of course, ahead of the game. With a global roster of correspondents and bureau, we deliver stories that you won't find elsewhere. Expect insights on everything from diplomacy and design to art and architecture, and more. Sign up today and you'll receive 10 issues and seasonal specials full of inspiration. 
Visit monocle.com slash subscribe and enter the code RADIO10 to redeem this offer. It is 7.46 here in London and time to talk urbanism with Kat Hanna, who joins us in the studio. Good morning to you, Kat. Good morning. Very exciting news for uh, foodies in London. Yes, absolutely. So this is an article in uh, yesterday's Financial Times uh, heralding the arrival of uh, the Wolseley in the city of London. Um, which is, I guess, not only exciting um, for for people that like those sort of venues, but actually also, as the article picks up, indicative, I guess, of some of the changes that we're seeing in the city of London. That emphasis on thinking beyond just offices, beyond you know things to do at the weekend and in, in the evenings. Again, moving beyond that nine to five and that kind of evolution of the city. The word that use, is used here is this idea of a destination. Mm. And and when we talk about the city, we mean specifically the, the sort of the square mile, yes. the financial district in London, uh, which really hasn't had great food options until quite recently. No, and I think, you know, as the article highlights, it's also probably previously catered to a relatively narrow set of, of demographics. You know, uh, one restaurateur, I think, refers to the kind of sea of suits that used to generally uh, populate um, a lot of the venues there. And again, that it's really about expanding beyond that. So thinking about tourists, people coming into that part of London at the weekend, which kind of previously... You know, you wouldn't really do that as a Londoner. Um, but now, as the article highlights, you know, you've got venues there that are booked up for Sunday lunch, which, again, is something that I think a few years ago we, we wouldn't really think would be the case. Absolutely. Well, the more you eat, though, the more you need to exercise. But it seems in this next story that we're not walking as much as we used to. Yeah, so this was an article um, in City Lab looking at data um, from the States provided by a company called Streetlight Data, looking at really various trends in how people get around um, in, in the past few years. And what the article has highlighted that between kind of 2019, 2022, so kind of um, over the period of COVID and beyond, um, walking has declined more or less universally um, across the United States um, by around a third, which is pretty high. That is really enormous, actually. And that's because people don't have the time anymore or because they're on those horrible electric scooters. There is a bit of that. So as the article highlights, um, it looks at um, different types of mobility, actually e-bikes, particularly popular, e-scooters, actually a bit less so. In another article we look at, we'll look at that in a bit more detail. But the article also highlights it's also just about as we talked in the City article, changes in how we live, work and play as well. So, you know, hybrid working, online shopping, all of those changes are obviously affecting not just when we need to get around, but how. Yeah. Can we go back to my personal bugbear, the fact that there are one million illicit electric scooters on the road and most of them seem to be wanting to kill me? Yes, it was a pretty staggering stat, actually. This is an article by uh, Oliver Wainwright, um, an opinion piece in The Guardian, really, um, I guess, critiquing the lack of regulation um, that we've had from the UK government um, on what to do with e-scooters. So the current situation, as you said, we actually have a number of illicit devices um, on roads. We've also had a number of trials of, you know, what are legal devices generally um, operated by schemes. Um, that have had, I think, varying degrees of success, as the article highlights. And I think the article's kind of pointing out, we've got a load of these trials, but actually, to what end? When are we going to see some regulation happen on the back of them, informed by what we've seen? Mm, I mean, do we have an answer to that? Um, not really, to be honest, um, is is the, answer, uh, the article really highlights. And I think it's about, you know... The tension really here is, you know, do you look to keeping these devices on the streets and legalised but with a number of safety measures 
But actually, then you've, we've had a lot of the operators saying, well, actually, that's too much in terms of safety measures. And then you're going to ruin any of the benefits in terms of people using them. So quite a few tensions in this piece behind both the operators, the users, the councils who regulate as well, and all the people that have to share our road space, which, as we know, is often feeling quite limited. Mm. Well, let's uh, talk now about people who would never dream of getting any type of public transport, let alone uh, pushing themselves around on a bicycle or indeed an e-scooter. And this is the wealthiest people in New York. Yes, I, um, this is quite an eye-opening article in many ways. Um, so a uh, piece in the New York Times by Emily Shapiro looking at, I guess, that the class of people that are almost living at a, a level above, almost floating above the city in terms of how they move around, the restaurants they go to, the private members club they frequent, actually also just the, the services that they tend to use as well. So, you know, we've long heard this phrase, you know, I guess of the concierge lifestyle, But actually the idea that, you know, technology, again, the proliferation of things like members clubs means that actually that's not just no longer something that's reserved for a very small class of very wealthy people, Um, but actually kind of a larger cohort as well. And as the article, you know, sort of points out, you know, know, there's a quote here I love, you know, the rich have long sought to avoid the inconveniences baked into the city. But what that actually does mean is, yes, they might have an easier experience of a city like New York, which I think we all know isn't necessarily an easy city, but... In many ways, is that kind of what makes New York, New York, and often really what makes cities, cities. And if you are only experiencing that quite narrow, quite rarefied, quite sanitised version, are you perhaps missing out on actually what makes urban living really quite so so enjoyable? Mm. And I mean, it's talking about concierge. And uh, I mean, I, I was under the impression that most New York buildings had a concierge. It's not necessarily the preserve of the rich. Yeah, so I think the term kind of concierge lifestyle that they're talking here is less about, you know, the physical, you know, having someone at the bottom the of your building, yeah. which, as you said, isn't particularly remarkable, but more this idea, whether it's through various apps, through agencies, having someone that is, you know, doing your laundry, private chefs, having, you know, Michelin-style food delivered to your doorstep. These are now things that are not only, I think, viable, but actually seem to be actually relatively popular amongst a slightly growing uh, group of people rather than, like we said, that just that tiny percent. But obviously at a time when cities are experiencing cost of living, it's, what does that mean in terms of that gulf that is growing between different classes of people? Absolutely. Kat Hanna, thank you very much indeed. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Mumbai is home to 169 billionaires and 59,000 millionaires. And now India's richest city also has a one-stop luxury shopping centre featuring 66 global luxury brands to cater for the wealthy. Well, these brands are following the trend of changing focus towards India as China's economy slows. India is the world's fifth largest economy and it's expected to grow at 7% annually. Dana Thomas is the author of Fashionopolis, the price of fast fashion and the future of clothes and she joins us now on the line from Paris quite extraordinarily so because we were just having dinner in Paris together a couple of nights ago Dana. We were and it was really fantastic. (laughs) It was really good fun. Uh, Now I mentioned your book Fashionopolis but of course you've also written a book on uh, how luxury is losing its luster clearly not in India. No in my book Deluxe I actually first wrote about uh, the brick countries. And one of the brick, the eye in brick is India. And this was 
you know, 15 years ago that Deluxe came out and I said that India was one to watch, that this was this it had a middle class that was starting to make a lot of money and was an aspirational consumer and that they were spending more money on the entry logo levels of luxury like scarves, sunglasses, lipsticks, perfumes. Well, in that 15 years, they have moved up the economic ladder and they are shopping, shopping, shopping. And they finally have their shopping mall to shop in. Well, tell us about this new mall. Well, it's enormous. It's seven that seven hundred and fifty thousand square feet. I'm not sure what that is in in square meters, and it has sixty six stores, including Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Cartier, Bali, Giorgio Armani, Dior, Bulgari, Saint Laurent. You know, all the usual suspects are there, and they had a very splashy opening this week, uh, where they had a, a dozens of of Bollywood stars and Zendaya and they they're charging a fortune for the retail space uh, the Times of India says that Vuitton is paying about $50,000 a month for their space and their space is gigantic i think it's 7,000 square feet and um, and all the retailers have to pay between 4 and 12% of their revenues to the to the mall's owners reliance it's the first place where all these places, all these stores, all these retailers are together. There have been a few retailers here and there. Uh, Vuitton was at the Oberoi Hotel. Hermes had its own store in town. But this now you can just like go and spend all your money in one place. Mm. And of course, this is all to do with the rise of the middle classes in India. It is, and there, and it's, but it's more than the rise of the middle class. They're now having a rise of the billionaire, the millionaire class, and the billionaire class. Eventually, uh, there is a much higher number of high net worth individuals in India, and that number is growing. They expect it to increase dramatically in the next few years. Uh, by, it's supposed to go up nearly sixty percent. By 2027, that's just around the corner. So it's it, there's there is room for growth. Somebody's gone. They have gone in and done their studies and said that there are going to be some very deep pockets in India, and let's just cater to them. Mm. So what does this mean for China? Well, China is slowing down. You know, its economy is slowing down dramatically, as is the United States and Europe, uh, especially in shopping, like in thing buying things. As I like to say, things that we don't need, and uh, and that would be luxury. So a luxury, of course, is they're a luxury. We don't really need it. So this, so spending on such things is going down, uh, and and or is retracting, as they like to say in the business. And but it's expanding in India. So India seemed to it won't take over China as the number one market, to be sure, because China is just an enormous country. So you know, mathematically, that's kind of you know impossible. And it's China will still be the primary consumer of luxury goods. I, I think between home and shopping abroad, it makes up up to two thirds of luxury purchases today, the, the Chinese customer. So it's going to retract a bit and India is going to step in and fill it. It won't make the biggest difference, but it, 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 it's, it's going to be a strong, strong number two. Mm. And when we're talking about luxury goods, as you say, the starting point is the sort of sunglasses and the lipsticks and so on. But the rest, it, it's not just clothing. It's also sort of high end decor, too. It's decor, it's hotels, it's restaurants. You know, when I was in Milan last time, I had lunch at the Dolce & Gabbana Cafe. You know, it's it's 
everything. These are not just, you know, luxury couture brands anymore. They're complete lifestyle brands that sell you everything. And we'll, and we'll decorate your house. We'll build your house if you want them to. (laughs) And, and your jewelry and your watches and your champagne and your, and your cognac and everything. They'll They'll do your cars and your jets for you. Tana, thank you very much indeed. Uh, And that's all for today's programme. Thanks also to our producers, Laura Kramer, Christy O'Grady and Monica Lillis, our researcher, Harrison Warlock and our studio manager, Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way and I'll be back with the briefing that's live at midday in London. And The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.